Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Meaningful Learning with Dr. Samantha Cotrera podcast. Many of you know that I started this podcast as a way to share academic conference presentations, and I expanded this work in spring of 2020 in order to bring you the audio versions of the pandemic pedagogy conversations I've been hosting on my YouTube channel, Imagining a New We. For this upcoming school year, I'm going to be bringing you a second series that I'm hosting on YouTube called Source Saturday, where I talk with historians and creators and archivists about primary and secondary sources that they have familiarity with and to talk about what they read from them. Although the series does work better as a video because we screen share the sources we discuss it, there are many interesting elements of our conversation that do, that do work as a podcast, but I do urge you to check out the YouTube video so you can see the source for yourself. Like the Pandemic Pedagogy series, these podcast episodes are unedited conversations, so you may hear buffering or the repetition of a question or an answer if Zoom wasn't working that great, but the content remains fundamentally the same as the video. Enjoy this version of Source Saturday. Hi everyone, Dr. Samantha Cotrero here for the Imagining a New We video blog, a video series designed to help history teachers and other history educators teach history in ways that are more meaningful, transformative, and inclusive for their students. So we are in the back to school week. It looks and feels different for everyone. And there's like feels, extra feels this year. Um, as I've mentioned in other videos, I'm doing three different video series this year because I apparently just love talking to my computer, but I hope that you love listening. Uh, the first is uh, Mondays are meaningful, just these little reflections on some little bits of theory to start your Monday off with if you want to uh, join me for a cup of coffee. Although in this week's video, I, I don't think I actually was drinking coffee, but I, I should I should make sure I have a beverage. Um, and the second one are the pandemic pedagogy series. And sometimes like this week, I will ask people those three questions that I asked all through spring and summer, which was, do you think about history any differently because of COVID and all of the social movements that have happened because of COVID? Do you think we're going to teach history differently after this? Or do you think it's just going to be these like band-aids that we're putting on um, our current practice, but we're going to probably go back to normal once this is over, whatever that looks like. And three, do you think that we're going to have a chance to imagine a new we um, after this period or during this period in ways that are different than than maybe before? And this notion of imagining a new we comes from my new book, which is supposed to be out uh, September 5th, which means that that was loud. I should have prepared this better, which means it should be out by the time you're watching this, but I think it'll probably be more like the end of uh, September. But anyway, Imagining a New We, Transforming the Canadian History Classroom. It's amazing. You should get it. But anyway, the other series I'm doing is this Source Saturday series, and that is a discussion with a historian or a creator or an archivist about a primary source or a creative interpretation of history. Um, and have them read through it, have them talk about it, to talk about their process of reading primary sources, and also to talk about how it challenges a traditional understanding that we often have of this period. And this notion, oh, I don't know if you heard a cat there. <laughs> this notion comes from my idea of historic space that I've been working on for about 20 years. Um, I have a new website that this material will be up on, and it basically is asking you to get your students to map out like a concept map, the grand narrative of a historical period. And I say, use a textbook, like use post-it notes in a textbook, create a mind map, do that for one class. Then for a couple classes, just expand those histories, like make sure they know some of the skeleton of the history, but really for the most part of that period, you were at, excuse me, for the most part of that unit of teaching about that historical period, that historic space, you get students to challenge that traditional grand narrative of a historical period. And they can challenge this period through sources that demonstrate histories that are different than what is in the textbook, but also by looking at primary sources, archival sources, oral histories, um, artifacts in new and challenging ways. So one of the things that I, and I didn't mean for this introduction to be this long, but like, it's okay. One of the things I talk about in this book is that students are looking for connection, complexity, and care in their history education. And this notion of 
of complexity is really, really key here for this notion of challenge. Because we don't just want to bring in new histories and be like, here are the new histories, kids. Because really what that does is just an add and stir or a drag and drop. Instead, we want complexities. We want these stories to be counter stories. We want these stories to help challenge a traditional way of understanding the past. And that element of challenge is such a key element of students learning Canadian history in ways that make sense for them in this complex, complex, I don't know why I just repeated myself, but it is very complex period that we are in now. And so one of the things that I want uh, want historians to be able to discuss in this Source Saturday uh, series, and that is a lot of S's, <laughs> is to talk about how their histories demonstrate these complexities, demonstrate the complexities and stories that really challenge this grand narrative that we often have of Canadian history, and that seems like that's all we can teach, right? It's like the textbook version. So how can we how can we bring in more complexity? And so that's a little bit of what this series is about. I have some really great historians lined up for the rest of fall. I did a call for like spooky ones around Halloween and I got so many that it's gonna be like a day full of videos if you're interested on witches and cemeteries and like um, seance history. Anyway, it's really cool. Again, the cat's going crazy. They heard about the seances. <laughs> But today what we're gonna talk about, um, although, so I don't know about you, but I always think of September as a new year, right? I mean, my birthday's at the end of August, so that's part of it, but school always seems like it marks a new year for me. And sometimes when I think of October, I'm just like, oh, it's February already, because I'm thinking of it as the second month. Anyway, um, so I always think of the new year as, uh, as starting in September, and so do, religions such as um, such as Judaism. Um, in This weekend is Rosh Hashanah and Rosh Hashanah is a Jewish holiday that is the New Year holiday and it's, um, uh, it starts an 11 day kind of commemorative period that ends with Yom Kippur um, which is again 11 days after. And so I like a good theme that's something that you should know about me so I thought I would bring in a Jewish historian to bring in a source that could talk about how we can challenge traditional understandings of a historical period but using a primary source that aligns with the new year the, that aligns with Rosh Hashanah that aligns with this particular holiday and um, you know I didn't really want to do a lot of repetitions of people that I spoke to in the fall uh, in the summer because I um, you know I, I didn't want to be like please do another video for me but I realized that one of the like key scholars of Jewish women's history is someone that I spoke to before which is Dr. Andrea Eigener. Um, she is not only the blogger around unwritten histories but her work is about 19, uh, 1950s Jewish women in Quebec and how they worked to build a Jewish Canadian community in the 1950s um, and so I was like Andrea do you have something that we could talk about to uh, like on the Rosh Hashanah holiday weekend um, for this Source Saturday. And she's like, yes, I do. And so that's who we're gonna talk with today, which I'm just so excited about. Um, uh, if you watched my series in the summer, you know that I spoke to her again about teaching and learning history during this time. And she has such an affective, student-centric approach to teaching and learning history that I think that this is going to be such a great conversation to bring those things together. So let's go over to Zoom. Let's uh, talk about different primary sources that can help you challenge the ways that you are teaching different historical periods and that the source this week happens to align with the holiday weekend of Rosh Hashanah. And um, let's go over to Zoom and see what Andrea has to say. Andrea, thank you so much for agreeing to speak with me again for the little video series. And I'm glad that you're here for a new video series, especially because when I was like, oh, it's going to be Rosh Hashanah. I should talk to someone that does Jewish history. And I'm like, I know a fantastic Jewish historian. <laughs> and so I'm so glad that um, we connected for this. And I know that the source you posted out is based, like, is a Rosh Hashanah source. So... Thank you for that extra like digging for that. 
Oh, my pleasure. I'm always happy to chat. Um, and I love your video series and your work. So this is just awesome for me. And I, I love sharing this cookbook. It's just so interesting. Okay, so well, before we get that, do you want to introduce yourself or reintroduce yourself to everyone? And then we'll start talking about the cookbook. Because I don't even think I said in the introduction we're doing a cookbook, but surprise, we are. <laughs> do you want well, to do uh, an introduction? It both is and is not a cookbook. But yes, so um, my name is Andrea Eidinger. Um, I am a historian of gender and ethnicity, and I live and work in Jujage, uh, Montreal. And I have done the vast majority of my research on the experiences of Jewish women in Montreal between 1945 and 1980, um, mostly because there hasn't been a lot of research done um, in this particular area. And I focus on the sort of lived experiences in the everyday lives of ordinary women. And one of the best ways that we can study that is by looking at documents, publications that they would have used in their everyday lives. And cookbooks are one of the most important tools that we can use to do that kind of history. Yeah, you know, I said in my introduction how important it is that we, like how students in particular want histories that are complex. And one of the ways we can bring in that complexity is to just read sources that we have in more complex ways. And that's why I love the idea of bringing in a cookbook. And I actually will be talking to another historian that also is talking about a cookbook because they are sources that like that are familiar. There's elements of it that are already familiar and it's a really good way of being able to like bridge in how can we talk about complexities with the source that we have available um, that's easily accessible, fairly e easily accessible, and that that students are familiar with. So I can't wait. Um, so show us the source that you're going to be talking about today. So I have two versions. Um, I will share the historical one. So this is the cookbook. Um, you can see that? Yeah. So it's called A Treasure for My Daughter, and this is actually my grandmother's copy. Um, it was published in, was it 1950 or 1953? 1950, okay. Um, by a group of Jewish women who were part of a chapter with Hadassah. Um, so Hadassah is a um, major Jewish philanthropic organization. And they work for the most part um, around Israel. And in the wake of World War II, they did a lot of fundraising as well for orphans and for Holocaust survivors. So this book was originally written as a fundraising tool. Um, and it is a collection of recipes as well as explanatory essays about various Jewish rituals all together in one book. Um, and what's particularly interesting is that even though this book was intended as a fundraiser, it was so popular that um, it became a staple. And in fact, it's still given as a gift to most Jewish brides in the city of Montreal. Or if you have parents like me, they give it to you when you move out. So this is my very own copy. Um, <laughs> with an inscription from my mom when I first moved out. So it says, Dear Andrea, with all my love to my daughter, I love you always, mom. So it's the exact same book, just about 50 years apart. Um, it, very little has changed um, in this book in general. So it's, um, it's a fascinating artifact. And I think it's in its 14th printing right now. So this is a, a legacy publication, I guess, if you'd like to call it that. Well, it's interesting too that it came from a philanthropic or philanthropic organization. And I think too, when we're thinking about Jewish history related to the mid 20th century, we think so much about the Holocaust and we don't uh, think as much if we're not in the Jewish community, for example, about the important community building work and work of ensuring traditions remain that happened after. And that's why this is a really great source to challenge the kind of traditional thing that we talk about related to 1950s and domesticity because that's in there as a cookbook, as a traditional cookbook that's based in very uh, traditional gendered notions of, of wifely and daughterly duties, um, but also to really challenge the different, the notion of community building um, after the Holocaust for so many Jews. Uh, absolutely. Um, it's also challenging in a couple of other ways as well. So, um, yeah, a lot of people associate Jews with the Holocaust, but um, in Canadian history, the vast majority of Jews who 
live in Montreal, I guess today, or who lived in Montreal in the 1950s actually did not experience the Holocaust. Uh, they had come uh, to Canada usually between about 1890 um, and about 1914, and that's when my ancestors came. So the vast majority never directly experienced the Holocaust, which isn't to minimize the experiences of those who did, um, but it's important to understand that this is a population that has very long history in this country and the vast majority of people who are Jewish are not immigrants. They are second and third, even fourth generation Canadians and the culture that this book describes is in many ways um, a new culture, one that is neither fully Jewish nor fully Canadian. But what we also see with this cookbook is um, a really powerful example of women's agency, so the ability of women to um, exert power over their own lives. Because when we think about the 1950s, we think about Stepford Wives um, and um, TV shows like, well, I guess Mad Men's in the 60s. But um, we think about women as being very disempowered, very much trapped in these very patriarchal nuclear families. But what we can see with this cookbook is a group of women who wrote and published their version of what Jewish Canadian culture should look like. And while there were men involved in this process, it's still a really powerful community statement and one that has had a very long lasting impact in the community. Yeah, I, I appreciate you bringing that history in. And you know, two things flag for me, which is one, something that you said earlier about this was used as a fundraising campaign for um, orphans and Holocaust survivors about what that is like to be Canadian and Jewish during this period and like the efforts to do kind of international, um, uh, international help charity work in a way um like that's an important part of history that we don't often discuss because we just often think as a, as uh the victimization part of it and the other thing that really that i thought of when you were talking is how important it is to recognize the ways these canadian cultures are developed and if you you know uh not you, Andrea, but sure, you, <laughs> but like for teachers who have a class full of students and maybe they don't have Jewish students, but they might have students, probably have students that um, have had families that have longer legacies in different places. What are the ways, like this is a good tie-in, but what are the ways that um, there has been uh, attempts to preserve tradition, but also innovate tradition and, and stake that claim of agency for yourself? Yeah, absolutely. And I think that while I, I'm focusing on Jewish women, because I mean, I, this is the community that I grew up in, it's the one that I know, um, but you can see the same story being replicated in, in all kinds of different communities um, across the world. Uh, it's a process that repeats itself, um, and it's often one that's very much on women, uh, because mm -hmm. they tend to be the ones who focus particularly on domestic traditions. Um, you know, the, the things that you remember, like your family traditions, family recipes, things that you might do on holidays, and, and these are things that, um, to my mind, come to define us in very important ways. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So let's go to talk about holidays. Um, you have ensured that we have a digitized version of one of the chapters. I'm going to share that screen share. And so what I was hoping for more of this conversation is that you can talk us through this document, what, what you read from it. Um, before we begin with what you read from it, can you tell us a little bit about this particular chapter you digitized for us? So this is the chapter on Rosh Hashanah, and I think it's important to understand a little bit about how this book is structured. So um, it's basically a series of chapters on various Jewish holidays. There are a lot of them. So this is a, only the most important ones and a couple of important Jewish traditions. Um, and it is written um, as a conversation between a mother and a daughter on the occasion of the daughter's wedding. So she's preparing for her upcoming marriage. And this is basically her mother teaching her everything she needs to know to be a good Jewish wife and presumably mother in the future. So each chapter is broken into about two you see on the screen here. Oh, sorry. Sorry, Andrea, can you say again each chapter is broken into and just say that all that again? 
Sure. Um, each chapter is broken into two different sections. The first one contains an explanatory essay about the holiday, um, and it's done in a way that it's a conversation between a mother and a daughter, and uh, on the occasion of the daughter's upcoming wedding. And then the second part of the chapter are menus and recipes that are particular to those holidays. So, I mean, what you're scrolling through here right now, this is the explanatory essay. Um, and so this is the chapter for Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah is um, the Jewish New Year. So it is one of the two most important holidays of the year. Uh, it is um, usually happens in the fall but because the Jewish calendar is lunar. It, it, it varies. So it can be anywhere between uh, late August to early October. And um, it is about a two-day celebration. Many people go to synagogue for it. Um, it's particularly, one particularly important aspect of the holiday is what's called the blowing of the shofar, which is a ram's horn um, that is blown to kind of signal the beginning of the new year. Um, as part of this new year celebration, um, Jews are supposed to atone for their sins. So if you ever watched uh, Stephen Colbert back in the days used to have the atone phone. Uh, that's basically what it was, is that you're supposed to basically apologize to anyone you have wronged over the course of the year uh, because you're trying to basically um, amend, uh, give amends for your sins so that God will write your name in the book of life for the following year so that you continue to live on. And um, another important tradition is, of course, food. Um, you cannot have a Jewish holiday without food, except for the ones that involve fasting. But I guess that is also still about food. Um, and uh, so there are a lot of different recipes that are associated this, with this particular holiday. And there's always a dinner um, on each of the nights of Rosh Hashanah. And they usually involve foods that have a lot of sweetness to them. The idea being that you need to have a sweet new year. So you can see here, there's um, honey cake which I'll get back to in a second. Um, and that is a very traditional uh, food to eat for uh, Rosh Hashanah. It's also delicious. Um, I live in a very Greek neighborhood and there is another honey cake. Um, it is a different honey cake, but I'm also just like, oh, I should just go get myself some honey cake at the Greek bakery. Totally different, but like, you know, similar. <laughs> yeah, this isn't anything like baklava. Um, but no, it it's is... not baklava. It's a, it's a oh. cake that's soaked in honey. Oh, okay. Yeah. That's yeah. interesting. I've, I've learned a lot about um, Greek, uh, Greek pastry <laughs> in the last couple of years. There, there is a dish that involves pastry soaked in honey in the Jewish community. It's called rugelach. Um, it is also delicious. I, I, know some, really. I know some rugula. I, yep, anyway, I think <laughs> talking about, uh, Anyway, <laughs> my, my sweet tooth a little too much. So tell me what you as a historian, and a historian that focuses on uh, the history of Jewish women in this time period, tell me what you read from the source, both in terms of like, like literally what you read, but also what are the things that you're pulling out as a historian when you read a source like this? So I think that one of the most important things is that it might be tempting to simply just look at the explanatory text of the essay that's at the beginning, but it's just as important to consider the recipes, uh, including their titles, their ingredients, and, and how they're made when we are looking at this as looking at cookbooks as particular historical artifacts or as historical documents. So um, when I read this, what I am struck by is a very significant contradiction. So if you read the explanatory essay, it's very solemn discussion of the religious obligation of Jews. Um, and it is um, very much focused on religious ritual. Um, I don't know if there's any particular part that's really good to bring out. Um, but it well, is earnest, uh, earnest self-judgment is not a particularly like fun activity. It, yeah, you'd think so, but this is actually supposed to be one of the holidays where you do have fun. But um, it's one of the, the least depressing Jewish holidays of the year. <laughs> right. um, most of the rest of the ones are like, people tried to kill us and they failed. Yay. <laughs> Uh, but this is just the new year. Um, so it's very, very um, traditional. It's also very religious. So there's a lot of discussion about particular prayers um, and um, religious services that take place. 
And then the recipes are an interesting mixture of Canadian recipes and Eastern European recipes. So for instance, here you have dinner menu number one for Rosh Hashanah. So a lot of these things on here are pretty standard in terms of Jewish foods. So gefilte fish, which I maintain is disgusting. Um, uh, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it, but it is basically a kind of, my mom would argue with me, but it's like a pickled fish loaf. Uh, think meatloaf, but with fish that's been pickled. It's uh, a lot of people like it. I'm not one of those people. Um, obviously chicken soup is very traditional. Um, you also see some ingredients on here that are in Yiddish, um, which is the, was, is the vernacular language of Jews in Eastern Europe. So you see here, the filta is, is a Yiddish word, um, but also mandlach, which is right next to the chicken soup. So those are soup nuts, kind of like really dry dumplings that basically exist to give you something crunchy to eat when you're eating soup. Um, and then there is carrot simis underneath that, which is carrots that are basically in, mixed with raisins in a kind of very sugary sauce. And then you have recipes here that are straight out of the 1950s, like apricot whip. Um, I assure you, in Eastern Europe in the 19th century, there was no apricot whip. Uh, not a traditional Jewish food, because, um, I mean, when we talk about Jewish traditional food, uh, it can mean many different things, but in Montreal, it generally refers to foods from Eastern Europe, because that's where the majority of Jews who lived in Montreal in this time period came from, so that's why they're Yiddish. So what we see here is a mixture not only of English words and Yiddish words, but we see a mixture of Canadian recipes and Eastern European recipes, but it's done in such a way that erases the differences between the two while also assuming that you understand particular words. Like most people don't know what mandlach is, right? Um, or tzimis, or even gefilte fish, although I think that one's a little more common. Um, but there aren't always explanations for what these particular words mean in this particular chapter. So there's a lot of assumed knowledge that's going on there. And um, that's particularly important because while we often represent Jewish history um, by looking at Eastern European Jews, that is only one kind of Jew. There are actually many different Jewish um, ethnicities and nationalities. Um, in general, we divide them into three different groups. Um, I'm not sure how deep you want me to go into Jewish history, um, but basically uh, the Ashkenazi are the Eastern European Jews, like me. Um, then there are Sephardi Jews who come primarily from Northern Africa and um, around the Mediterranean. And uh, these Jews were, <clears throat> excuse me, largely expelled from this region at various points in time. So many of them immigrated to the Netherlands and England. And then there are the Mizrahi Jews who are Jews who um, never left the Middle East. So um, in Montreal, we have a particularly large community of uh, Sephardic Jews who came primarily starting about the 1950s, 60s, but increasingly after the 1980s, and their culture and their traditions are completely different. They don't eat foods like gefilte fish. Um, they tend to eat foods that are much, have a lot more in common with Arabic cultures from Northern Africa. Because uh, this is what we see no matter where we go in the world, Jewish communities who are in the diaspora, meaning who've left the Middle East, often intermix their foods with the foods of the region that they are living in. See, what's really important about highlighting that in this discussion is that even if this isn't a history that you're familiar with or that you thought that you would be interested in, it really highlights how so often we can say things in such one-dimensional ways without recognizing the vast complexities of these histories and the ways that we come to these histories. So one of the things that I'm hearing from you is that a book like this, while it's a staple in like the Jewish Canadian community, would actually be unfamiliar to some Jews. Yep, and it's, it's very much about uh, as I mentioned in the article that I, I published about this, about creating a particular type of Jewish orthodoxy. It's not just about these recipes being familiar, but this becoming the representation of what Jewish food in Canada looks like. Um, and still in North America, in Canada and the US, this is Jewish food, right? If you watch shows like Seinfeld, 
um, you watch Jews with uh, watch Jews watch shows with lots of Jewish characters. You'll see these kinds of foods, particularly chicken soup and gefilte fish. Um, but these are very particularly Eastern European traditions. And when we focus on these as the sole representation of Jewish foods and Jewish culture, then we're erasing huge parts of the Jewish experience. Um, and even that three-part division that I explained is a simplification. There are um, Jewish populations in Ethiopia, in China, in India, who all have their own particular um, traditions, and like there are big differences between Jews who are from Germany as opposed to Poland, as opposed to Russia, Austria. So I mean, there's basically every family will have their own particular recipes based on their own particular lineage. Um, and it's also particularly interesting that this book came out at a time where there was significant upheaval in the Jewish community with the arrival of Holocaust survivors um, because they came in such numbers that basically you see the doubling and even the tripling of the Jewish population over uh, the next couple of decades. And these Jews often came with their own traditions that were very different from these, uh, particularly when you have the arrival of Hungarian Jews after the 1956 um, rebellion, as well as more religious Hasidic Jews who came from Poland um, around the same time. So um, in many ways, the way that I see this is a particular attempt to establish one particular vision of Jewish food as Canadian Jewish food. Yeah, that's really interesting. And if we draw on what we know about the 1950s because of the real, um, like, larger popular cultural interest in a particular type of domesticity, suburban, gendered, um, classed version of what the ideal family is, in, in lieu of what you're, not, not in lieu, in relation to what you're saying, um, what I'm also thinking is that this demonstrates how you can fulfill that kind of vision of post-war vision of domesticity in a way that both acknowledges it, but also crafts a very unique um, element of Jewish identity, but also in doing that really tries to codify. So it's like, this is the particular gendered nature of things that are happening right now, but this is the version of um, Jewish identity we want to make sure is attached to that. Am I getting something like that right? Yeah, no, that, that's absolutely nailing it on the head. Um, it's very subversive in some ways. It's also very much following the norm. Um, and, and one of the things that I did wanted to mention too that's related to this, oh, there's the honey cake recipe, by the way. Um, I have not tried that one. My mother's Your recipe. mother's going to be so angry about that. No, no, she doesn't use this recipe. Uh, <laughs> uh, we used uh, another recipe. At least I, I might be able to find that other cookbook if you give me a minute. But um, the my mother's recipe is amazing, um, but she won't let me share it. So, um, okay. sorry. Um, <laughs> so um, the, the other thing that I wanted to mention, and, and actually uh, this particular menu is, is important as well, is that uh, when it comes to the 1950s, there's a really strong emphasis on conformity. Um, and, and you can see that coming through here. But what we also see um, in other aspects of Jewish lived experience during the same time period um, is a real emphasis on um, whiteness or passing as Canadian. So some Jews can appear white. They are sometimes or often ones of Eastern European heritage benefit from white privilege and are able to assimilate and pass in Canadian society as if they are undifferentiated Canadians. Um, but in doing so, that also erases the experiences of racialized Jews. Not all Jews can pass as white. Um, and there are, there are further complexities that come into this about who looks, what, it, what does it mean to look Jewish? Um, and there's a really interesting concept. I think it's, the name is more recent, but it's an old concept of Judar, which is kind of like Gadar, but for Jews. And this idea that you can tell who is Jewish just by looking at them um, based on certain char common characteristics. But that also includes things like the language that you use and the recipes that you make. So, so race is a very important uh, part of this whole story as well. And so for dinner menu number three, Two, what I, I love this one in particular, um, because again, I guarantee you roast duck with orange slices is not a traditional Jewish recipe. Um, and I have never met a single Jewish person that makes that 
for Rosh Hashanah. But I mean, that's, <laughs> I mean, really, it's, but that's, that's part of the point, right? Is that this isn't about necessarily the way people were cooking, but about a sort of aspirational statements about what it meant to be a Jewish Canadian in this time period. And it's mixed in, you have potato varenikis, um, which is kind of like um, potato dumplings. Um, you have honey tagelach, which I don't even remember what that is, but it's a, it's a dessert basically that involves pastry soaked in honey. Um, even I'm like, and someone who studies this, I can't keep all of these recipes straight in Yiddish because I don't speak Yiddish. Um, the only Yiddish I know is swearing, and that's not appropriate for uh, educational videos. Um, <laughs> only, only if people watching understand Yiddish. <laughs> yeah, but a lot of them have become so common that, that you, you would understand them. Um, and the other, um, but it's there's the the roast duck with orange slices, but you also have the very traditional mix of honey and apple that you eat during the New Year. Mm -hmm. um, so it's it's a um, it's a melange de culture. Yeah. So there's a couple of things about this particular re uh, recipe that I wanted to, or uh, menu that I wanted to pull up to ask you a couple questions about. So the first thing is I've been listening to a lot of radio shows um, from the late 40s, early 50s, which are basically podcasts, right? Like, <laughs> just talk about podcasts if it's like this new thing, but anyway, um, that's neither here nor there. So Jell-O, Jell-O uh, is advertised a lot on a couple of the different shows that I'm watching. And so I think of it as a very, as a very 1950s type of, um, type of product. And while this is a jelly and not a Jell-O mold, like to me, this is a real like clear flag about, of, of that, that, or clear demonstration of that kind of, um, uh, conformity to larger 1950s culture and so like I am not Jewish I did grow up in some neighborhoods that were Jewish so I'm familiar with some of the things but like I would not be familiar with this I may have eaten it but I don't necessarily know this language but this I am familiar with right and so this also just flags to me that if you're reading a cultural text of a culture that's not yours and something is familiar to me, this conversation is flagging how important it is to flag it as like, why is that familiar? Like, where did these things come from? How does it fit into the historical trajectory? How does it fit into notions of class and gender and race that we would not have necessarily thought of before? The other thing before you comment on that is I wanna talk about the roast duck with orange slices and the sweet and sour meatballs. <laughs> <laughs> like, which is Chinese recipe yes right so that's the thing too like there's this big joke about Jews going to Chinese food restaurants at Christmas but it's not a not joke good. it's actually uh, a tradition um, it, it's actually quite a long tradition and so maybe could you flag that kind of transnational multicultural blending of those different types of histories in with this particular menu Sure. Um, I think one thing that we often forget about is that different ethnic cultural communities have had relations between each other. Uh, and there is a long history of connection, um, especially in Montreal, but really all over North America, between Jewish communities and Chinese communities, uh, because there are many overlapping traditions. But really, the connection comes down to food um, and Christmas as a very important part of that, because so for most of the of the continent, um, Christmas is, is, is an off day, right? No one works on Christmas, everything is closed. And so when you're Jewish, this really sucks. Cause I mean, most Jews don't celebrate Christmas and you're like, well, what am I supposed to do with myself now? Um, and there's only two places that are open, Chinese restaurants and movie theaters. So what you do is you get your Chinese food and then you go to the movie theater. Uh, of course, if you are living in 21st century, uh, BC, you might do like I do, which is um, get sushi on Christmas and then watch movies on TV. Uh, but um, you know, it's the same. It's the same principle because the Chinese community is not necessarily Christian, or um, and not necessarily one that takes off Christmas. And so there is this this long tradition of, of eating Chinese food on Christmas. There's even a really funny video um, about it on YouTube uh, that I really like watching. 
and showing people as kind of an example of kind of the syncretism you see between uh, Chinese and Jewish culture. But it's kind of a one-way kind of thing. Uh, you don't really see Jewish recipes in Chinese communities. Uh, I mean, frankly, I don't really even like Jewish recipes for the most part, so I don't know why anyone would want to eat them. Um, but fish. Sorry? Here, have some kapilta fish. Oof, no. Um, I'm terrible. I'm going to get murdered in the comments over for me saying that. Um, uh, yeah, and, and um, I think the other point that that's really important here um, is that, and someone even asked me this, I think, today, like, well, you know, what do you eat? Like, do you eat Jewish food? I'm like, no, I eat Canadian food, right? Like, I'm Canadian. I only eat this stuff on holidays. Um, and, and so there's still this idea of othering that is something that many ethnic communities have in common with each other. Um, even though, I mean, I would love to see it be something that connected us more as opposed to something that forces us to compete with each other. Um, but it really um, emphasizes that the vast majority of Jews are Canadians and they eat just like everybody else. Um, I like sushi and pizza. I do not like a built fish um, or brisket, particularly not brisket, which my mother is still very upset with me about. Um, and the recipes that we eat um, that are traditionally Jewish are only consumed during holidays, which I think kind of reinforces the connection between this idea of these foods as being Jewish foods and Jewish holidays, in particular because many of these recipes are, are Eastern European peasant recipes. There's nothing particularly Jewish about a lot of them. And you'll see a lot of um, exact counterparts in Polish, Russian cooking, and um, they're consumed by everybody. But as a result of the sort of evolution of integration, assimilation, and just Jewish culture in Canada, you see these recipes become sort of enshrined um, as Jewish religious food. Yeah, thank you for that. And I, I, in terms of that connection between um, Chinese people in North America and Jews in North America, like one of the reasons why Chinese food restaurants are open is because, um, you know, many people in the Chinese community um, aren't Christian or not celebrating uh, Christmas as a day off, like you said, but also that Chinese food restaurants don't have a blending of milk and meat, which is a requirement for kosher cooking, right? Um, you, you clearly know more about this than I do. Oh. <laughs> uh, I was like, oh, that, that, that look, was I wrong? <laughs> no, no, but I suppose that's true. Damn. Okay, I've just exposed myself as a fraud. Um, <laughs> um, but also, it's, I just it's not pork, that's the thing, I guess. It's like pork spare ribs are like classic Chinese food. Um, yes, there is a lot of pork, but I also just wanted to highlight that like sweet and sour balls of any sort are not like ancient Chinese food either. Like a lot of the food that we eat in Chinese restaurants in North America are created, foods that were created for a white North American palate in particular. Mm -hmm. Sweet and sour balls of any sort um, <laughs> is one of those foods. The Chop Suey Nation book that's, um, that was out last year really highlights that really well, but there's also General Tao's Chicken, which General, oh no, Search for General Chow, which is an American documentary about the history of Chinese food restaurants, especially like ones in small town America, but it's the same for Canada. And like that is interesting too, like to just, I guess what I'm, I'm flagging is to like interrogate what we understand to be familiar foods and to recognize the ways culture, often whiteness, often notions of class and gender do get built into that because yeah, are Eastern Europeans eating sweet and sour meatballs and tomato sauce? <laughs> God, yeah, actually, how I read that, there's just so many elements. Um, but no, mom but makes that for every holiday. She loves the sweet and sour meatballs. Okay, great. Cool. I, you know, <laughs> but like my great grandmother, who was Italian, would she have made meatballs and tomato sauce and like called it like this? Not really. And at the same time in the 1930s, 40s, 50s, 
uh, Italian women, like it Italian food was labeled as ethnic food and Italian women were being taught through recipes and campaigns to get rid of their ethnic traditions. So it's interesting, this blending of so many things in this one line and just like how 1950s it is. <laughs> it is. Um, and uh, there's a really great article by Valerie Kornick and Franca Ayacoveta, um, I'm blanking on the name, but I can send it to you, about um, how ethnic women, if kids and sisters are strangers, how um, ethnic women were basically taught to be Canadian. Yeah, there we go. Uh, taught to be Canadian through cooking classes. Yeah. Love that. Um, okay, so as a way to kind of wrap up our conversation, which has been really great, and I'm obviously super hungry now, um, uh, how does a, how does a cookbook like this challenge our understandings of the 1950s, considering we're just talking about how it demonstrates the conformity that we often associate with the 1950s and domesticity? So I think it does it in a couple of ways. Um, so the first way is um, I think that it shows that the stereotypical image that many of us have with the 1950s is, is just not a stereotypical image. Uh, women have agency over their own lives, over their own cultures, and played an important role in ensuring cultural continuity, but we're also able to speak back because in many ways this recipe is a response to, uh, or this recipe book is a response to um, efforts to enforce particularly Canadian versions of how you should be cooking or visions of how you should be cooking. Um, and second, it is a really important example of the diverse nature of Canadian history. I mean, still today in most classes, um, at all levels, in many books, the sort of stereotypical white experience is taken to be um, a stand-in for the experiences of all Canadians, and that is not an accurate representation. Canadian history has always been diverse, it has always been complicated, and the experiences of people who we would have identified as white in different periods of time uh, only reflect one aspect of that particular history. But for me, what this um, cookbook highlights the most is the importance of studying the history of ordinary women and their everyday lives. Um, I know there's been a lot of discussion in the media now about statues and grand national narratives of history, and I think that those have their place, although statues of Johnny McDonald's are a little more complicated. Um, but when it comes down to who shapes us, we are fundamentally shaped by the histories of our families, um, whether we know them or not. Um, these are people who have shaped who we are, how we see ourselves, how we relate to other people, how we see ourselves as Canadians, as members of particular ethnic cultures. And, and this is something that is, is fundamental. It's also something that connects us in this great web of the past, the present, and the future, because we still see these kinds of cookbooks being published today. Um, it's very popular to do low calorie Jewish foods right now. Um, and, and you see further adaptations of these traditional Jewish recipes. Um, and this is something that continues to evolve. And I mean, by the time uh, my nieces and nephew grow up, I'm sure their version of Canadian Jewish cooking will be completely different than the one that I grew up with, um, even the one from my grandmother, um, who they never got the chance to know. Um, but that legacy, those experiences of my grandmother are still ones that are meaningful to them. Um, even if they don't necessarily know how to recognize it. Because these are the recipes, some of these recipes, are ones that my mother still uses. Um, and they're the ones that my nieces and nephew eat when they come to grandma's house for um, Jewish holidays. So it's, it's creating this, um, I think, really powerful link, and I think shows the importance of doing this kind of history. Because in many ways, it's more meaningful and impactful than histories of grand narratives when it comes to um, how we see ourselves and um, our regular everyday existence. Yeah, thank you so much for that. I, I feel like there's so much in our conversation that a teacher or an educator could pull out to model for their students or to ask their students what are, what are symbols of their tradition that gets passed down and how are these symbols shifted and changed and what can we learn about these symbols and I think cookbooks are a really interesting way to do that. Um, and especially in 
a period like the 1950s because there were a lot published and there's available ones available online but to have students to talk about things that they're familiar with and things that they're not familiar with as a way to to break open this notion that we all share the same culture and all those words and concepts or, or cooking techniques would be familiar um, like it's a real interesting point of comparison but but not not to show differences in a way to other, but in order to demonstrate the variety and diversity and complexity of what it means to be Canadian and what it means to be a member of a cultural community that is always shifting and changing, right? Yeah, I think a great exercise, I mean, for teachers if they want to do, and this is something I, I've thought about doing, although I haven't had the chance to, is asking people to uh, talk about their favorite recipes. Why are their favorite recipes their favorite recipes? Um, and, um, and, and speaking to even just the differences in cuisines um, and, and cooking styles, um, I almost forgot to mention that um, my grandmother had this chicken fried rice recipe, which yes, I know is Chinese. Um, and my mother just loved cooking it, but she always made it um, her way and my dad was always complaining that she didn't do it right. And while I was doing research for this project, I came across the handwritten recipe from my grandmother. It just like randomly fell out um, and it included ingredients that my mother had never seen before. And they were all in measurements or like a dash of this. And, and my mom was like, and she lied. She put in different amounts depending on what she felt like. So um, <laughs> it's also important not to take this too seriously. Um, uh, but it's, uh, I think it's very cool. And I think there's a lot of really cool possibilities. Um, but also, um, if your audience want to wish people a happy new year in Yiddish, um, you can do that. Um, you can say, uh, that's how you say happy new year or good yantif, which is basically have a good holiday. Well, thank you so much. Um, and Shana Tova. <laughs> Shana Tova. <laughs> <laughs> Um, it was so wonderful to talk with you and I think this is a great way to start the series and start the new year. This is a new year for you. Um, thank you so much. This was fantastic. Oh, thank you so much. Um, I, I love being able to talk to people about um, this kind of history and, and this particular cookbook. And all the, the links to um, the digitized copy of the, um, the cookbook, the article that you mentioned, the article to this book if people are interested, or the link to this book if people are interested, are all below the video. So um, feel free to click. You can find Andrea on Twitter like you can find me. So you can ask me about like sugar desserts, I guess. <laughs> But you can ask Andrea about any other, uh, any other uh, element of Jewish um, cuisine, uh, although you can also ask her the best place to get sushi in BC, apparently. <laughs> uh, so thank you again. This was wonderful. Thanks so much again. Okay, bye.